Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you like beer? Do you like free? How about, you guessed it, free beer? As a valued listener, we'd like to bestow upon you just that. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious and painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com slash arsenal and cover just the postage of £4.95 and... As if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Footballistically Arsenal podcast, you get two extra free beers. So that's ten free beers. Beer 52, in case you didn't know, are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beers from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then that they're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time, the power is in your hands. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains the theme and individual beers you'll receive, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Don't like dark beers? Choose the light plan. It's easy. So just go to www.beer52.com slash arsenal to get your case free, and don't forget, right now, the Footballistically Arsenal podcast listeners get two extra free beers. Yes, they do. Hello and welcome to Footballistically Arsenal, the ongoing um, coronavirus series of specials in which we have a deep dive into one of our main Arsenal sporting friends. I'm Boyd Hilton. I'm joined by sidekick, sidekick Josh Landy. Hi, Josh. How's it going? It's great. Good to be here again. I must say I had a lot of people message me wanting this link to access all the season reviews from seasons gone by. I, I think I've never had such interaction after a podcast. So to all those oh, you people mean, now, last, happily... Yeah. Yeah, last week you mentioned this. Happily watching the 1996-97 season review 
uh, or wherever it may be. I mean, it was an amazing Google archive. If anyone else wants the link, just find me on social media and I'll, I'll happily oblige. That's very kind of you. It's very kind of you. Um, we've got, we've had uh, Derma O'Leary, we've had Mark Pugach, we've had, we've had legends, and we've got another legend on tonight, live from LA for the first time on this podcast since August two thousand and fourteen. We have the Honourable Ben Winston. Ben, how are you? Ah, oh, I'm delighted to be back, boy. Though it's been too long. And, uh, Way too long. Thank you for having me. I, I I used to love doing this podcast. I'd do it. What would we do? We'd do it every Monday night or whatever, and we'd meet yeah. in town, and I'd come and do it, and I'd fight with Dan Baldwin, and uh, you would referee between the two of us as we would uh, squabble. And uh, and it's been, I can't believe it's been five years that I've been left out in the cold. <laughs> um, I introduced yeah. you two. That's what's funny, is I said to you, you boy, this guy you should know, he's my first cousin. His name's Josh. He'd be amazing on this thing. You two should get together. And then that was it. That was the last I heard. I never got another call about it. You basically replaced <laughs> me with my cousin. It's absolutely yeah. outrageous. I don't know what the fuck you've been doing for the last five years, but yeah, it's it's uh, we've we've coped without you, and uh, you did. You were absolutely right. You 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 you. I mean, you saved this podcast from let's face it, repetitive tedium by <laughs> making sure Josh was coming in. He's uh, changed my life. He's changed the podcast, um, obviously infinitely for the better. I mean, it was brilliant with you and Dan as well. But um, yeah, it's been a lot. It's been absolutely if, if if for everything you've done in your life and career. If you've achieved anything, it's bringing me and Josh together. I think it's probably the main thing. Oh, I'm, that, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm pleased by that. I'm delighted. Yeah. That, that's what yeah. we're on team, What's interesting you know what is, I, I just thinking, worked, boys, go on. Yeah, go on, Josh. Well, do you think when Ben was last on this podcast, we had just signed Alexis Sanchez. That's how long it's been Wow, since Ben was on this podcast. So there's a bit to catch up on. There is. Um, <laughs> what I worked out was... Um, when we signed Sanchez and, and, and Ben was on August 2014, then the next month was when it was announced that James Corden was taking over the Late Late Show. So I presume your life changed in that moment, in that month, when you knew that you'd be moving to L.A. and, and you're still there. I mean, that was an incredible moment, wasn't it? So that, I think that's the real reason why you never came back on the podcast, because your life changed Hugely, yeah. and you ended up making uh, 749 episodes of The Late Show with James Corden. Has it been that many? Yeah, it's about yeah. Right. right. Good research, Boyd, that you know how Thanks, many mate. Um Yeah, I guess so. Uh, the good news is I've been keeping notes on every single fixture since August 2014, <laughs> and I'd just like to run through now, if you don't mind, if you've got sort of 26 hours. I'm just yeah. going to quickly jot through and give you my ratings and, and, and also my pre- I've been writing down my predictions as well. So I'm going to give you all my predictions for every single game and uh, tell you how I did. Um, yes, I, I did. I got uh, James uh, decided to take over the Late Late Show. They asked him to come to America. I wasn't uh, necessarily going to go with him. Um, I then flew out to L.A. probably around... It was a bit before August, actually, although it was announced in August. We were planning it a little bit before then. And I flew out, met uh, the powers that be of CBS, and they decided that my company, Fullwell 73, would make the show. And I decided to fly out for what I said would be nine months. Um, I was going to do sort of three months planning the show, booking it, you know, designing a set, working out what the show was, and then I would run it for six months, and then I would come home. Um, because I had family and a business and everything going on in the UK. And after nine months, I, I really enjoyed myself out there and, and the network wanted me to stay. And we had an opportunity to make other shows. And so I ended up staying and here we are sort of five and a bit years later. And, um, and I'm still in Los Angeles. Uh, so it's been, 
Yeah, it's been a life-changing five years, that's for sure. Yeah, incredible. And how, how are you doing generally? Before we get, we'll get into, you know, Arsenal and uh, your, your love for um, various players and a lot of stuff that you've done involving great footballers, including Arsenal players. But I want to, let's say where we are at the moment with the virus and everything. How is that? Obviously, that's completely change television and you know, i watched i watched the um home fest that you did with james that was broadcast last week that was brilliant i thought you did a brilliant job and he got very emotional about it i thought that was really moving and real but in general how are you doing how's your family doing and how is it how is it affecting everything in your yeah. professional life it's a it's a, listen it's a very very weird time i think firstly emotionally and i think everyone's a bit like this you have you have moments where you're like actually this is cool i'm sitting at home watching tv and i have no I have nowhere to be. That's fun. And then you have other moments where you're incredibly bored. And then you have other moments that you're unbelievably sad and, and anxious and worried. And I think that that's okay in a way it's sort of, you know, good days, bad hours. And, and you've sort of got to remember that this is the first time probably in my lifetime, at least that the world is so united with the same anxieties and worries and, 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 and sadness. And I think there's something, um, there's something unifying in that. Uh, even during wartime, some countries weren't involved in those wars. And here we are where it's, it doesn't matter where you are from Africa to India, to Mexico, to London, uh, we're all affected by it and we're all indoors. Um, for my business, of course, it's been really difficult. You know, we, we had a lot of shows that we were making, um, some really big things that we were doing, um, that have been put on pause. Some of them have been paused. Some of them have been abandoned, um, some of them um, we hope will come back, uh, others we know won't. Uh, and that's a lot of money. It's a lot of jobs. It's a lot of, uh, worrying times for any company. We, you know, we're, we're, we're like everybody else. We have huge concerns and the best we've just got to do the best we can for our staff right now. Um, as for the late, late show, which is one of our shows, um, yeah, we did. We moved it for a one-off special to raise some money for, to for feed the children. And, um, and we did it from James's garage and, and we linked up with loads of artists around the world who did songs from their front room. And I think Sky One showed it last week, which is great. Um, and then we're coming back on air next week. Uh, we're going to do a daily show every night from James's garage. And it's, wow. you know, it's a, it's a hell of a lot of work. You know, I try and produce the show from my laptop on zoom. Uh, we're all using zoom. So we have a gallery on zoom. We have you know, he'll turn on the cameras himself and, and we'll, we, you know, we've got an auto cue so that we can write stuff for him. And yeah, it's going to be really complicated. Um, I don't know if it's going to be very good, but, um, but I, but we need to be back on air. Um, and that's partly to make sure everybody, you know, we have 150 people on that show who work on that show. And, you know, if you're not delivering new episodes, then you can't expect a network to pay their salary. So we've got to get back on air. Um, and we're looking forward to it. I think, you know, at times like this, you sometimes need comedy shows or, you know, or these late night shows in America to sort of um, give you a break from either the monotony or worries or sadness that you have. And I feel like James is a, an incredible host who does that so well in America and people love him for it. So, so I think there's a few reasons why, but we're going back on air next Monday. That's brilliant. Yeah, we we, we to, yeah we just need people need stuff to distract themselves, don't they? And that's why we're still carrying on doing this bloody podcast. Partly, yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was amazed by that. But technically, like, because there's a lot of um, a lot of shows are doing you know webcams and they're doing you know and doing you know all kinds of ways of looking at themselves remotely. And it always looks terrible. But your the, the the home fest looked brilliant. It looked like you had proper cameras in everyone's home, and I did I couldn't I just couldn't work out how technically you managed to get the whole thing working so brilliantly. 
Yeah, I mean, I could go into it, but I imagine it might be quite boring. Uh, but <laughs> Let's yeah, talk about that right. for the next we few didn't, hours. We didn't do it. We did spend time and energy, and we worked out. We built, we built actually, a small camera that's high resolution, uh, and we attached it to an iPhone. So uh-huh. essentially, we delivered it to all those people's houses um, and, and left it on the doorstep. They would then pick it up, and then it meant uh-huh. the fact it was connected to the iPhone meant that we could talk to them alive, and the fact that they had a high resolution camera meant that we could see them a lot better. So yeah no we did we, we 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 did it properly i don't i don't want james just to become like a youtuber just talking into fake yeah. zoom and so uh we made a bit of an extra effort and um in a way we've made a rod for our own back here because now we've got to do that every night and make it look the same production values but but uh yeah it was important to me that the show sort of stayed at a certain level that's for sure but i yeah. think um, i think i think every industry is going to change now i think you know we are we are in an, you know, we're going to, when we come out of this, obviously the economy is not going to be in the best situation. Television shows are one of the things that of course are going to be cut. And of course, what networks are seeing right now is that we're all making shows so cheaply and actually they're rating the same. So I have a sort of genuine worry about what happens when people are asking us to do this and make TV like this when it isn't uh, everyone locked in their own homes. But, um, but you know, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I'm glad I asked that question about how you did it technically because that was really interesting about dropping the cameras off. Josh, I was I was fascinated by that. Are you glad I asked that question about all the, the technical I, background? I am glad, actually. I like the idea <laughs> of, uh, of the things being dropped on the doorstep and you've got to go and, and get it. I mean, that is one of the interesting things at the moment. You get a delivery from Amazon and they ring the bell, but then they take a couple of steps back because they have to see whether you're, you are in, which presumably most people are at the moment, um, to pick it up. So, uh, yeah, that's a, yeah. a nice thing. Yeah. Before, uh, ben, before, just one other thing. People would have seen here about the friends show is that still gonna happen yes. at some point yeah so we've um so I, for those who don't know i was doing a well, obviously it was announced that friends were going to do a reunion and, and i was um very lucky that i was producing it and directing it um which i've worked on for about nine months going around to each creator and member of the cast and pitching them an idea and trying to get them on board it's been a lot of um it's been a lot of uh, effort and energy um, that will still happen um we have a deal we know we're going to make it for hbo max we don't know when um yeah we just got to see when this is all over really but yes it was supposed to be shot on 23rd and 24th of march so i'd been sort of building up to those dates for quite some time um and uh, in the end we were all sat at home doing nothing but yeah no i i, I think i'd be really surprised if the friend special didn't happen that's that's one of the shows that we've got that i think uh, whenever we get back to normality um, they'll there'll still be a demand for that, uh, and 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 I think that we're safe in that show specifically. Yeah, um, oh, I'm very it's got to happen. It's got to happen. I mean, I, that, I mean, you've achieved a lot. You've you know you've you've you produced the late late show. You you've also helped produce the Gavin and Stacey special. We should mention that, which is the single highest rated program in the history of British TV, pretty much. But getting the friends together, I mean, fucking hell, honestly, I mean, that is that that will be an extraordinary moment in my life, let alone yours, and you've actually been producing it and meeting them all and yeah, trying to get them together. I, really, um, I feel very lucky. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. I should say it isn't a new scripted episode. A lot of people no. are like, what happened you know it's not that it's it's a very it's a it's a show where the six of them are going to be back in the room for the first time we're rebuilding the sets and it's almost like a part documentary part variety special part interview but it's we've got some really cool ideas i'm very very excited about the show but i should say that it isn't like the sitcom coming back it isn't like no, um no it isn't it isn't that um, but that's so, we, yeah. that, that, that's that's enough. That's just having them in the room. I mean, you could you presume you could have them six feet apart. Couldn't you like? Can you do you know do that relatively soon? I'm just you know. 
hoping that it will happen soon. The other thing that we should mention that your company, Full Well, is, is done is Sunderland Until I Die, this incredible documentary series, season two on Netflix just arrived recently. I mean, everyone wants to know, because ben, ben, Josh, you, put up a, you said, you know, who wants to ask um, Ben a question? And a lot of people say, what will, that ever, will you ever be able to do a similar kind of documentary about Arsenal? But I guess it's a difficult situation, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Sunderland Until I Die uh, is my company show. We made it. We're proud of it. I can't take any credit for it. That all goes to Ben Turner and Leo Perlman and the team who make that show. I I just get to watch it like everybody else and i'm just so proud that it's part of our company if you haven't seen it on netflix it's unbelievable it's genuinely an incredible series um i was so proud of season one and season two is even better um you know what i'm not sure i'd want to make one about arsenal it's really funny i think that um i think that the boys who made it leo and ben they're huge sunderland fans and um I think in a way it was quite sad. It's sort of quite sad for them. Like the great thing about football is football is our, I think football is our escape. Football is like the thing that we love and enjoy and want to feel angry about and sad about and happy about and joyful about. And when it starts becoming like a job, I think that that's when, I don't know, that's when I start enjoying it less. And so I'm not sure I would ever want to make a Flanderwood documentary about Arsenal. Um, I, I just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they'd ever let us because I'm sort of, I was almost surprised that Sunderland let us. So I'm not convinced Ar- Arsenal would ever let us. And, and if they did, I sort of feel like, I don't know. I'm not sure it's something I'd really want to make. I quite like the fantasy of loving all these players and, you know, it's sort of back in the manager. I don't necessarily want to see um, the warts and all version of our football club. I don't know. Um, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, um, let, let's let's move on to Arsenal then. Finally, because this is an Arsenal podcast. Um, what's your what, where are you at the moment? What's your feeling? You know, you were, I know you're a huge fan of Unai Emery. Um, you were gutted to see him go, um, and now we've got Mikel Arteta. What's your feeling about Arteta and how, and the way the club is at the moment before everything ended? Okay, so, temporarily. So, so firstly, Boydo, if you couldn't tell it being sarcastic, I wasn't, I never backed Unai Emery from the moment he arrived. I was worried. I wasn't a fan who immediately went, you know, Emery out. I, I, I wasn't like that, but he concerned me from, from the first minute. He concerned me. I remember when he put Genduzi, as far as I was concerned, out, you know, he, he, he put him out with the wolves when he, when he played him against Man United and asked so much of him. Um, and this, and this desire to consistently play out for the back, even when we didn't have the ability to do it, it was almost like a lack of understanding. And the other thing I thought is I think football is so much about communication and the fact that he, he, he couldn't speak any English and it seemed like he couldn't evoke any passion from them at any point always concerned me. Um, and that concern sort of came through when, you know, I, I always think about the dressing room, whether a dressing room backs a manager. And I think like on the one hand, we loved the fact for five minutes, we loved the fact that he pulled people off at half time. We thought, wow, that really shows strength. Wow. If it's not working two people come off at half time. Amazing. And then actually, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, well, the dressing room isn't going to love that because they're embarrassed for their fellow professionals that have been dragged at half time, sometimes undeserving, sometimes deserving. It just didn't feel like the right way for a player to manage, for a manager to manage. And on top of that, there was no way he could be communicating with those players to make them feel okay about it because the guy couldn't even speak in a post-match interview. So how could he make a player feel better? Um, when he's dragged them at half time. And so I, I, I never liked him. I felt like I was going through what I went through when Bruce Rioch was the manager after George Graham. Um, I felt like he was, he was, he was the modern day Bruce uh, in that, you know, we were never great, but we were never terrible enough to worry. Um, 
I was delighted when they made the change and, 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 and got rid of him. What shocked me was how long it took to then get Arteta in. It felt like it felt yeah. it sort of, it was a really surprising thing. They felt like they were so um, forceful in the decision to remove Emery when they did. But then suddenly I was thinking, well, the next day we'll have a, a, a manager in the same way that when Tottenham got rid of Pochettino, they had Mourinho lined up, but yet we didn't. We sort of went through this weird interviewing process all over again, and it was like, yeah. oh, you could have done that before you fired him. But maybe they just thought the Freddie era was going to be an era worth watching. Um, I think Arteta's exciting. I think he's encouraging. I think, you know, you've probably, I've, I've heard you speak about him on the pod before, and I, and, I, and I agree with everything you're saying about him, really. I feel like he is a manager that's going to need time, but he's a manager that's really exciting in that he's saying and doing all, all the right things. And I, and I sort of feel like I, like I like the fact that we've given, you know, this, this guy his first opportunity, um, who's clearly an intelligent man, clearly gets what the club's about. Um, there's been moments that I've been slightly worried about it. Um, there's been, but I think that that's with the, the new dawn of any manager, really. Um, how yeah. are you guys feeling about it right now? How, how, well, you know, obviously the season's been put on pause, but but what are you feeling? Do you feel like we're going in the right direction now? Well, I do totally. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I think it was very interesting the point you made about the um, that period where. Freddie Freddie Lundberg, who I love, you know, I love him as a, loved him as a player, and he seems like a great bloke when he was put in charge. And that weird period, as you say, where they were where they were going through the, the process they've been through already, interviewing everyone and being linked to every single available manager in the world. Um, it was, and I haven't really thought about that until you mentioned it just now. How bizarre that they didn't just go for Arteta quickly. Um, it seems bizarre now, especially because I think, in answer to your question, I think he's, he's done as pretty much as well as you could possibly hope in the sense that the communication thing, which I, I totally agree, because I always, I, you know, as you know, I was trying to give Emery, you know, as long as possible. And I just hoped that he couldn't be that bad. And I don't think he was that terrible a coach. He just didn't have, he didn't have a vision, did he? And I know it's hard to necessarily have a vision when you just arrived at a club that needs a lot of work and, you know, all of that. But. I feel now we have a vision, we have a style of play. Sometimes it may, you know, the players may not be able to fulfil what Ted wants them to do every minute of the game. And we've barely had two perfect half, two really good halves of football, which has been rare. But generally, the results he's getting, the number of clean sheets, the sorting out of the defence, which I think was it thought was impossible at one point with, those, with our defenders. And just his demeanour and his manner and his communication skills, which I think that touches upon about, you know, like, what you do, your communication has always been incredible ever since I've ever known you. And but I think it's so important. It's like almost like that can be the difference between that horrible word elite. You know, achieving something in the elite upper echelons of of a, of a of a world like football, and just being all right, as you say, like Bruce Rioch and Unai they were fine, they're all right. But Bruce Rioch was incredibly uninspiring a figure as well in his post-match interviews. I remember that period. Whereas. There's something inspirational about Arteta, you know, genu- gen- genuinely. I thought his statement he made when he said he, he, he's got over the virus was inspirational. I love talking about how, you know, we have to all communicate more with each other. And I just think he's a very intelligent, eloquent figure. And that, for me, is enough right now. You know, like, I think that, that's really important. Josh, what do you think? No, I massively echo what you're saying. It's interesting talking about Sunderland till I die because I think so many football fans also probably watched, you know, the All or Nothing on Manchester City and saw, you know, Mikel Arteta in a different way, perhaps from being so close to to Pep and seeing the way that Arteta was so involved. I think that gave, you know, in a weird way, a lot of 
confidence to Arsenal fans thinking here is a man who we have seen with our own eyes in a, in a management coach environment and be so impressive. And look, I, I think I can only evaluate how, how inspired was I to go on away trips under Unai Emery? And I've loved going home and away for years. And obviously as everyone gets older, it gets harder and there's more responsibilities. But suddenly under Arteta, my mates all wanted to go again. Yeah, we, were like, we, were, yeah. we were supposed to go to Manchester City that night. Do you remember when he got called off for like the day yeah. before the game? We were going up to Man City. You know, we'd gone in the previous three, four weeks to all the away games because it was fun again, because you had something you could get behind, not because you thought we're 100% going to win today in a way that you felt like that in the early 2000s. And we had, you know, it's amazing. We had two years of not losing an away game under under Wenger in those early years. So it's not like that, but just suddenly the whole thing's fun again. I've loved going, you know, since he's taken over. And the first few months of this season, every club we played against was having 20 shots on our goal and it was just like this isn't this isn't like anything we've seen before and it's not about you know whatever came after Wenger it just wasn't it wasn't good enough so yeah massively behind you know Arteta now and excited to see what happens what I felt frustrated about with you Boyd when when you were supporting Emery and we we got into a little Twitter spat or I texted you on the side saying how can you because because I on paper I 100% agree with the people who would say how can you judge a manager after a year? I am genuinely not one of those people who's just after five games going, ah, oh, this is rubbish. I'm not. You've mm. got to evaluate it. And so I was, I was, I was annoyed at myself that I couldn't back Emery um, as, as I wanted to because I felt, because in my heart, I thought anybody who sees, we, we, we absolutely should have been in the Champions League this season. We absolutely, the opportunity that we had to get fourth was outrageous how many games we lost in the league. And then I remember, because I flew from Los Angeles to Azerbaijan to sit with uh, 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 Josh at the uh, Europa final. We did go together, didn't we, Josh? Did I go with you? Yeah. We were on the plane together. I think we, were we on sat the... with, uh, with Tom Watt, but right, I, we, we were both there. We, yeah, were, we, were, we both. were together after the game. That's right. I think we the highlight of that whole trip was the bar after the game. With the yeah, we did. We did find a nice bar. But I, I found that period of time. I found that period of time unforgivable from Emery because I think mm. that lose that many games or drop that many points or then go and just be so weak in a final, just one game to get us in the Champions League that could have changed everything. And I felt like you can listen. Organization is one thing. Tactics is another thing. Um, buying players, players recruitment is another thing. But fundamentally, when back's against the wall, you've got to look to somebody who inspires you to just pick up literally just a few more points or, or compete in that game against Chelsea. And the fact that we just fell apart at the end of the season when we most needed to win, and it wasn't because of the teams around us were doing so well. It was literally of our own destruction. I just found that unforgivable from a manager who just couldn't get them to play when we most needed to be able to play. Because those players want to play Champions League football. Like, no one goes on a pitch and thinks, I can't be bothered to play Champions League next season. I'm no, not of course, like, oh. yeah. Like, you've got, oh, and no, I you, felt like that time just, yeah. even though it was his fourth full season, I just found it unforgivable. I, I totally understand that. All, all, all of my own, in, in my defence, I, I think it was difficult. when I think when, when Emery arrived, it, our squad was full of players, I thought, who had, you know, mental weakness, if you like, who were not strong enough to to kind of pull themselves through at the end of certain key games and you know 
and that had been going on for years. So I just felt I couldn't work out. I think it was hard to work out when our season at that terrible end to, to last season and that failure to and the collapse in the in the in the final and all of that. Um, it was difficult to work out. Was it his fault entirely? Was it the players' fault? It was just one of those situations where you weren't quite sure. I wasn't quite sure. I have to admit, whether just how good or bad he was as a communicator um, and as a and as a set of tactics and all of that versus the ongoing problems I felt that we had with the character of a lot of our players. And I think that was why that, that's pretty much, you know, the, the only reason I just wanted to give him more time is just because I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe he can given time, given a pre-season and new signings, maybe you can pull them together. It, it, it just so turned out that, that we were even worse and we were even more shambolic when it came down to it uh, this season. And then, I mean, pre- I, you know, I can't remember when the first time I, I, I said that we had to go. But, yeah, I mean, I was certainly, I was happy for him to go, you know, weeks Look, I don't. I also, here's the truth of it. I don't think Arteta's start has been brilliant. You know, we went through a period where, I think there was only one win in seven league games. Have I got that right? Or have I made, I think I'm pretty sure he had one. There was at one point I was looking and I was thinking, gee, seven league games, one win. And I was, and I was getting concerned because meanwhile, you know, Ancelotti, who obviously was an option for us, his record at Everton was, was better. And I think still is probably better. Um, But fundamentally with Arteta, you feel like given time, he is going to be someone. And so therefore, actually, I think what the board did and, you know, um, what the board did is they looked at someone like Ancelotti and they went, well, that is a player that maybe could get the best out of the older players right now and getting us winning games today. But going with Arteta is a manager that is for the future. It's somebody who's going to think about the suckers of this world and the youngsters of this world. And, and, and I think that that was a very encouraging move in a way to build for the future um and so i i feel like arteta will get our support even if he you know even if he struggled for his first year i think that we as a fan base would support him whereas emery i just felt like it just we just never felt like this was there was a future play in that it was more like let's try and win the europa cup and then we couldn't and so yeah that was that was sort of my feeling on it really yeah sure but i mean i know you're right that it hasn't been brilliant but i I think i I do maintain it's been almost as good as you expect considering the players he had to deal with he has really snapped the defense into shape as much as possible i mean we've got i think we've had seven clean sheets in his 15 games and the 15 games before that we had one clean sheet you know so purely on that basis and on top of that i would say we are we're definitely more attractive to watch than we were than we were um, under emery just in terms of you know some of the some of the passing moves and some of the attacking play has been pretty good you know on and off so i just yeah but i agree the bigger picture i agree with you yeah i think we've all got we'll have a lot more patience for him because we know i think you can just tell what he's capable of you can tell potentially what he could do with those players but we should take a quick break as we have to do for an ad, and then we'll be back off this and we'll talk more about with Ben and Josh about uh, Arsenal and uh, the players we love and all of that. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, Check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. 
Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. And we're back from the break um, with me, Boyd Hilton, Josh Landy. Ben Winston is back with us. Um, the other thing we should talk about, Ben, with is you, you, at the moment, there's a lot of stuff going on in the news about footballers, you know, in this country, they've been, you know, MPs are saying, members of the government are saying, our oh, footballers should take a pay cut. Um, Liverpool today just went back on their decision to, you know, use this furlough programme where the taxpayers would have paid for cut in salaries for a lot of their non-footballing staff and they've changed their mind i think which is thankfully they've changed their mind spurs obviously haven't changed their mind yet this whole thing about what should happen to football in terms of that i want to get your opinion on what do you think about that because you've got you've got to know a lot of footballers in 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 the last few years haven't you you know you you know david beckham you know ex-all is tony adams is a great friend of yours do you think do you i find it like bizarre that football is being singled out and being said told oh you know you this is what you should do this is what you should do whereas i don't see you know actors and book writers and all this that have singled out what's your feeling about the whole thing i thought the whole thing was scandalous and i think that it's an absurd story that is so irrelevant right now and it's just newspapers needing stuff to fill because there's not much going on apart from the coronavirus and therefore they need to find angles on the coronavirus story. In Matt Hancock's defence, the health secretary, when he said that outrageous thing about he needs Premier League footballers to support, and I'll go into why it's outrageous because a lot of our listeners might be thinking it isn't outrageous at all. But the only thing, I, I never heard what the question was. And if the question was, do you think Premier League footballers should be donating their wages? then it's fine for Matt Hancock to say, I do think Premier League uh, players should be donating their wages. But they always cut the question off when Matt Hancock, the health secretary, was answering the question. So I don't know if he bought that off, bought that up of his own volition or if he or if he was answering a question. If he was answering mm. a question, then I don't blame him answering it. But if he just bought it up, Premier League footballers, uh, randomly, I think it is outrageous because I think why isn't he talking about movie stars or musicians or people who own big businesses or anybody else or lottery winners? I, I mean, the point I think is is that firstly, I think the PFA made a very good point when they said that if how do you do that pay cut? Are you saying because it's it's so easy to say our oh, Premier League footballers should just give money? I actually think that it's about an individual, and if an individual wants to give money, then they should do. We're seeing out in America a lot of the NBA stars. The basketball players are getting together and they are taking care of all of the match day staff um, in those stadiums that they play in. And there's schemes going on. It looked like Jordan Henderson was heading up a, a yeah. version of a similar scheme. And I think there's a lot of good within football. You know, I look at our club, you know, and obviously, you know, I think as football, football in the community and Arsenal in the community, what we do for the surrounding area is crucial and so important. And I think that the players understand that, especially at a club like Arsenal. Um, I also think that, you know, as the, I, I got distracted there, but the PFA ultimately, they made a very good point. If you take a 30% pay cut, then are you saying that the club, the business doesn't pay them 30% and then that 30% goes to charity or to the NHS. But then how does that work tax paying wise? And do we trust the people who run these football clubs to suddenly work out what 30% is. It makes no sense. Essentially, no. the best way for it to happen is that actually these footballers get 
paid. They pay their tax on it, which is probably 50% tax. So that goes back to the NHS in a more compelling way than anywhere else. And then if they want to make donations, then perhaps they should because they're wealthy people, as anybody who's wealthy should hopefully be doing right now. But to make it an enforced donation, to me, didn't really make much sense. Um, I also feel like, I, I, like the government created a scheme, a furlough scheme, to help businesses um, that, that they would pay 80% of the wages. And therefore, I don't think you can always blame football clubs for taking those schemes that the government have offered. Um, but, but, I, you know, but it is good to see so many football clubs are going back on that now um, and they are taking the responsibility themselves rather than putting it on the government because the government is clearly going to need so much money to, to pay for the businesses that really do need to, to, to help their uh, staff rather than football clubs that maybe have surplus money and don't need to. But then you look at a club like Sunderland in Sunderland Till I Die – that's a club that doesn't have a pot to piss in. You can see that from watching the show that we made, and it isn't necessarily even run by millionaires. So, but yet, if they had used the government scheme to furlough their staff, which would have ensured the chef that you get to know in Sunderland till I die, or the kit man, or or the woman who works in marketing, or whatever, is paid, do you blame that club for using it, or or are we just talking about Premier League clubs? So it's I, I don't know. I think it's very easy to take moral high grounds during a period of time like this, but actually. You know, you've just got to trust individuals, I think, to make the best decisions that they can. You know, a, a, a yeah. really interesting thing I thought, you know, there was a, a it was very big news in, in America. I don't think it would have been such big news in the UK. But there is a, a guy called David Geffen who ran record, who, yes. who ran the music industry for years. And yeah. he posted a picture on his Instagram of him on a yacht um, <laughs> yes. saying, you know, we're out, you know, quarantined in the, in, in the Caribbean, hope everyone's keeping safe. And of course he was annihilated for being so tone deaf to what was happening in the world. Um, and he's of course been vilified on Twitter and, you know, rich guy, not helping anybody else. But actually you look into David Geffen's past, the guy has donated billions and billions and billions every year to hospitals and to charities. And I don't, I can't think of anybody who, whose name is on more American hospitals than that guy. And so I don't know him. I don't have any, you know, but I also feel like, yes, it was a bad tweet. It was clueless. And yes, he does have a boat, but I don't, I can't think of anybody in the public eye who has donated more to charity or helped more people. So I think we're very, very quick to judge. Same with these footballers. Um, you know, we're very quick to judge them. We're very quick to slag them off, but I think actually a lot of them are donating and they are giving back. And I think you look at players today led by Hector Bellerin, I would say, who consistently back great causes. Um, Meza Ozil does the same. You know, they are very involved with charities and foundations, and I don't think they necessarily deserve the bad press that they get. And I think we've just got to trust them like we all need to, um, you know, hopefully be more philanthropic than we've been before in our careers. I know I'm thinking about that too. So, so anyway, that's, that's a long mm. answer, but I, but I sometimes no, that's interesting. Media can get on the bandwagon and it's unfair. Well, yeah, no, I do. I, I, my memory of the Matt Hancock moment where he rashly, I think, uh, I'm sure he regrets it now, was that he was asked quite a general question about, you know, what should happen with football clubs. And he did bring it up pretty much himself, I think. I'm sure he does regret it now. But I think I, I, I think I get the sense that the footballers are trying to work out a way themselves of paying for the non-footballing staff's wages, aren't they? I just get that sense that that is brewing and it must be complicated. But you know, I totally think they've. You know, a few of them have come out and said it, as you say, and Henderson's been working on it. And I, I, so, yeah, I think just leaping to conclusions about what they're going to do, and what they should do, and, and and lecturing them, I think is is absolutely ridiculous. Josh, what do you reckon? 
I'd agree. Look, uh, most of the people I, I speak to, I guess, are ex-fallers are, are just out of the game. But it's been interesting getting, you know, their take on it. And obviously, some people that are out the game really recently who would have been on similar sums of money to what people in the game at the moment are on. And the overriding feeling is just not wanting to be told what they should do with that money. And I'm not sure that's unique to being a footballer. I think charity as a as a general concept is something that's very personal and a lot of them do a lot for good causes especially you know locally or things that are close to them as you would imagine like if you've got a connection to a certain charity you're going to do more for them than you might just get a cold email so i just think most of them get get the feeling like they don't want to be told i think what what clubs can do at the moment and you've seen it with you know gareth southgate and, and maybe executives of the club they can go we're taking a 30 percent cut we are encouraging um you know uh, others to do so but it's a you know it's got to be on an individual basis and it's not all about people who want to get the most pr here like it'd be very easy for a player to come out and try and sort of you know use this opportunity to be seen as you know know a, a brilliant do-gooder and and i'm sure there's a lot of people doing the charity without wanting the sort of attention for doing it and so it, it can be a bit sort of lost here but you know i just think yeah i agree i think it was outrageous for matt hancock to sort of pick on the footballers i think they've got you know a, a lot of people who you know do look up to them and they would expect them to to do good but just because they're you know expected to doesn't mean they need to be told how to do it i think that should be yeah. met and the only way you can do it is an individual basis and, and let me just clarify i'm not for a second when i'm saying that, that footballers shouldn't be made to give money I, I i i think that we we're in a society where actually what's going to happen now is anybody who i think what the, the only way these countries recover is actually you know income tax is going to have to go up and at the moment if you think about you know a, a very wealthy footballer probably gets about 45 percent income tax i wouldn't be surprised next year if that moves up to 60 percent income tax and so therefore don't don't get it twisted like like people who are wealthy will have to be paying more to pay for what the government are bailing out so many individuals and businesses and the nhs etc so so i think that i don't think anybody's saying that that you know people who earn a lot shouldn't be paying more and i definitely think that footballers should be should be charitable people but my point is anybody should be charitable people the world should be a good moral place where mm. everyone wants to help each other I, I think that matt hancock talking about premier league footballers was clickbait and trying to get the headlines and potentially trying to move the focus away from what started as an appalling uh what an appalling response to a clearly uh career defining thing that was happening right now for these politicians you know this is a guy we had a prime minister and obviously i don't know when this is going to go out but we just heard before we came on air that boris is devastatingly sadly he's in intensive care right now you know this is a guy who two weeks ago was saying um you know i went to a hospital and i shook hands with every patient even if they had coronavirus because i think that's an important thing to do or something of that extent you know talking about how you know he wasn't going to not shake hands with people and you know, I think there was a real lack of understanding about how big this was going to get from many governments. And now that it is, I think there's more important things to be talking about than, you know, what Premier League footballers are giving to what. Um, that's, that's my take on it. Oh, you're absolutely right. I, I watched, I mean, I watched Donald Trump's um, briefings every night. Enough. It's like the most weird and bizarre and depressing yeah, it's really, spectacle, it's really, isn't it? It's like... It's really sad and it's really upsetting. Um, and, you know, and it's sort of, you know, he's making jokes during it about models that, he, you know, yesterday, the other day he was talking about, you know, the, the scientists came up and, and spoke about a model that uh, he was the 
behind. And yeah. Trump went, oh, I wasn't behind this model. I, oh, I, no, I've, yeah. been, I've been behind other models, but not this yeah. one. You're like, you know, this, we're in such a time of despair, and and it's uh, and it's a shame that he's the leader of America right now. That's for sure. That's um, yeah. But I also think that you know we're gonna. I mean, this is off the subject of of of, of football in a way, but I think that one thing. I think it's really important for these governments to know there's a lot of nationalist governments right now. You know, everyone, you know, <clears throat> British government is quite nationalist in a way. It's, you know, it's Brexit. It's, you know, look after themselves first. America is definitely America first. Make America great again. Brazil has got a government that only cares about Brazil. And what's funny about coronavirus is this is a thing that people need to be giving more international aid than they ever have done. Because ultimately, in our own countries, this won't be solved if we let other countries suffer. So in Africa and India, where the problem is going to, when we are through the back of it, both in America and England, if we're not helping India and Africa, then the problem is going to come straight back to us because this is a disease that's going to keep on rising up unless we help defeat it across the world. Um, this virus doesn't discriminate. It will hurt everybody wherever they are. And you can't ban international travel forever. You can't not have people come and visit their families in from Africa or India or wherever else. And so therefore, we need to, at the same time, spend money here. We also need to make sure there is money to be spent internationally, because otherwise, uh, we're going to be hit with this problem for a long time. This is a world problem rather than a country problem. Yeah, I mean, that, that's so true. I, mean, I think the world's going to change, isn't it? I think the way people do things and the way taxes, you, you talked about taxes, the way you like paying nurses. And I think, well, I think a lot of things are going to have to change after this, you know, when we, if, when, hopefully, if and when we do get through this and we, we return to some kind of normality. You just can't carry on with this situation, as you say, where, you know, people don't think about other countries and don't think about, don't even think about, the impact of this whole thing is going to have on 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 the world. Yeah, it's absolutely it's absolutely incredible. But we do have to talk about with football because obviously this is a football podcast. That was a, that was a great gear change. And I do want to know one thing one thing about the way football has effect, been affected by this whole thing because there's still, you know, the the UEFA was saying the. The, all the different national leagues should finish their seasons, and they're they've been you know they're being quite clear about that now. What do you, if you were in charge of the whole of the Premier League? Say, what would you what would, what solution would you come up with in terms of finishing the season? What would you do? Well, I think the Qatar World Cup is interesting because I think the Qatar World Cup and correct me if I'm wrong, the Qatar World Cup is happening in Christmas anyway. Yeah, correct? yeah. So I think that you've got an excuse there to potentially change the entire next few seasons and make it revolve around that world cup at christmas because i think either way that's going to be a big break at some point i definitely don't think this season should be abandoned i think that would be a terrible thing and it would be an unfair thing and i don't feel we should be starting a new season until we finish this one so whenever this calms down and whenever we feel like it's safe enough for either 22 people to be close to each other and play a game of football, um, or whether we feel it's safe enough for 80,000 people to be together and watch a game of football, whether it's behind closed doors or it isn't. And I think, by the way, as soon as they feel it's safe enough for games to happen but not crowds, I think games could happen without crowds. I think that would be fine. I actually think that would be a really nice thing for people to be watching it around the world. It would be a different way of watching sport, but it would be an acceptable way and an exciting way. Um, I definitely think this season should be finished. And I think when yeah. this is finished, we just need to, and there's no point predicting now because we don't know whether it will be May, June, August, December. We don't really know right now. So there's no point actually making any decisions because you're going to have to keep changing your mind um, when, you know, that deadline is. But I would say as soon as we know what that date is, we work out how many weeks it's going to take to 
finish that season. Um, and so let's say we say, uh, okay, we can start playing ga- games again in August. We work out that we need six more weeks. So we go August and September will be that. And we just push the season along. And I think that even if it means we happen to be playing over the summer, but yet we're not playing over Christmas, maybe that's what we end up doing. And we have to essentially say, look, what's more important now is that we get the world back in a healthy way. And everyone can go back to normal and start their businesses up. And that's the priority. But I don't think we should just be saying, well, let's start, you know, because let's say that we don't get out of this until September or November. That still affects next season. So I I think that ultimately the world will be coming out of this at a similar time, or at least Europe will. And Europe is the thing that matters because... You know, you're playing for Champions League places, and you. But so I think it's probably a Europe-wide decision rather than a worldwide decision. But I, I think we play the games as soon as we can play the games, as soon as it's safe to do so. Um, but we can't abandon a season, and even if it means that you just have a one-week break in between this season ending and the next season starting, that will be okay. You know, players will have to get breaks at different times. Transfer windows will have to change. But I think that there is clever brains that could work out a way of this happening. And even if it means we start the season. January and we play January to January and we every year the season gets two weeks shorter until we can get back to how it used to be I think that's how it has to be done yeah I 100% agree with that absolutely yeah yeah um we're gonna we've we've, nearly an hour go on Josh can I I, I've got sorry Josh did you want to come in before I said something no no it was your voice then (laughs) I got your voices mixed up go on We, we sound so similar it's because our mothers are sisters um I uh, I wanted to say something controversial, and, Go I'm on. say and I'm going to put it out here, and it's and it's very much current football. I want to argue with you guys that since the moment I left London and came to Los Angeles in 2015, I would argue that this squad today is the best and most exciting squad that we have had since 2015. Discuss. I would 100% agree. I I would absolutely agree. I think, I mean, this was the, one of the weird things about the whole, this and last season. I even thought, I thought what, you know, when we signed, when we made some big signings, Pepe, you know, for example, on top of the attacking talent we've got. And when you see the young players that are being brought through the suckers, et cetera, and you've still got Aubameyang and Lacazette and you've still got, you know, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it has been, it is the strongest squad. So I, I know you, you thought it was going to be controversial, but actually, I well, think on paper, it is the strongest squad we've had in years. Because here's the thing although he only won, although I was saying earlier, Arteta only, you know, won one game out of seven, that, the only reason that started to worry me is because I looked at it and I thought, actually, the strength of depth in this squad is impressive. Because for a first time, you know, granted, we haven't kept anybody fit, but but Leno has done unbelievably well and has and we've, yeah. and we've got a goalkeeper that we currently trust and we believe in and he's doing great. You've got two fullbacks in Hector Bellerin and Kieran Tierney, who granted haven't always been fit, but they're outstanding they're outstanding fullbacks. On top of that, you've got the old school players who let us down occasionally, but they are the sort of players that you need. Those old heads like like Socrates and and, and, and like David Luiz. And then and then, you know. You've got young players like Rob Holding and Callum Chambers, and then suddenly you've got Saka and youngsters like um, Joe Willock and Genduzzi and Maitland-Niles and, you know... Uh, uh, Martinelli. Through and Martinelli breaking out. And then yeah. you've got 
a better midfielder than a better midfield than we've had in a long time. People like and I grant you Granite Xhaka we could talk about for a long time, but he's been playing better lately. But yeah. then you've still got Torreira, and then you've got Ceballos who has been totally underused. You've still got Meza Ozil who can do things, and then you've got Laka Aubameyang. Martinelli, uh, um, Pepe, who hasn't come good yet, but I hope will. Ultimately, you've got a real balanced squad in youngsters that we are unbelievably proud of. For the first time in a long time, we've got a group of youngsters that we can really believe in that feels like the future is bright and not and also good English youngsters as well, which is incredibly exciting. Then you've got players that are just damn right exciting. Um, and, and, and you've got more strikers than we're probably going to have for a while because... Ultimately, if we don't hold on to them, um, this could be the best squad that we are going to have in quite some time. Because my concern is if Obama Yang does go, then actually this season, although we'll underachieve by the end of it, this season will probably be our best squad that we're going to be able to have in quite some time. Because we're also not going to be able to go out and spend 80 million again on Pepe. So I feel like the reason why I'm so desperate for us to finish fourth this season is because I'm not convinced we're going to have a better squad than this for some time. Yeah, I just wonder whether, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. I, I actually think, you know, I have no insider information, but I actually think I wouldn't be surprised. I've said this before, if Aubameyang and does stay, you know, I, just, I think, you know, partly for emotional reasons and who knows how this whole virus situation will affect everything anyway. But I do agree in general that yeah, this squad is, is, is fantastic. And I, I think my proof of that for my, my own terms, when I remember whenever whenever the team gets announced, you know, like when you get the team news these days, pretty much every time the team's announced, I think, oh, that's a really good bunch of players, you know, whereas two years ago, you know, it would be one week, you know, you'd think, oh, that's all right. He's picked the good, he's picked the best players and I'm pretty excited. Then another week would be, oh God, why has he picked so-and-so? And, you know, those players just aren't performing. And it'd be like, a that would be a very tense situation, you know, just hearing what the fucking team was. Whereas now, Pretty much whoever he picks, I'm happy because I think, you know, potentially there's a really exciting performance out of most of those players. Josh, what do you think? No, I'd agree. I, I just think, you know, how, how good is your team can often be seen by how good is the bench. And right now, our bench is, is so good for certain games. You know, you'd look at it and go, Lacazette is is not a guaranteed starter at the moment, and you know what what a player he is or he can be. You know Martinelli is probably one of the most young, exciting strikers, and if and if not him, you've got um, you know you've got Eddie to to talk about, and that, that's just sort of three striking options. There are probably none of them that are starters. So you compare that to you know d- during this lockdown period, um, I think I was watching what's that the other day, the Arsenal Hull FA Cup final. I mean, we, we, this is when Ben was leaving the country. I mean, we, we threw on Sonogo. Sonogo yeah. was who we went to, to to win. So, you know, you go back that far and it's kind of like, wow, the, the strength and depth we've got now is, is there. But I think that's why, you know, the, the last five Premier League games of last season where we absolutely threw it away. You remember that defeat at home yeah. to Crystal Palace, the, the draw at home to Brighton, um, you know, absolutely like easy defeats away at, at Wolves and Leicester. You know, that was a frustration because, OK, Pepe's come in. Yeah, there's a bit of change. But the squad last year was also good enough for being a top four. So it was good um, enough. Yeah. But I think I think the difference now is 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 you've got your Martinellis and your Zuckers and, your, yes, you know, I just yeah. think Zucker. Just, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Just those three or four. 
Yeah, we lost Ramsey, you'd say, also in there. I mean, look, yeah, I, I take the point, you know, we have Welbeck and Ramsey, you know, there's a few a few changes, but look, last year was good enough. But this year, you'd say it was good enough, but, you know, Arteta is not going to be able to necessarily do it on half a season. You know, presuming that the season does get continued at some point, you know, we're very we're very unlikely to get in the top four, my, the bookmakers will tell you. Top my five, worry is, my, my real concern is, although I feel incredibly positive about next season, both with Arteta having a real long pre-season, which is exciting to me, and I think the young players, like the ones we've talked about, Saka, Martinelli, etc., Willock, I'm excited about that, but I'm also very concerned about it because I think that there will be no money spent in the summer because I think that we overspent last year and I think that we took a risk on trying to get in the top four, which I don't think is going to look like it's paying off. I think that we have a strong chance of losing Obama Yang. I think Ceballos goes back to goes back to Real Madrid, doesn't he? And I and I think that will be a loss because although he hasn't played that often for us, I do believe he could have been a great player for us. And if he was here with us next season, I think he would be. And so I feel like my concern is I'm although I think the young players are going to get better, I think our squad could be much worse next season. And I think that finishing in the top four would have been crucial to spend yeah. and, and I know I, what you mean. I'm, yeah. I'm concerned yeah. that this might this squad this season right now it's partly why I was so frustrated with Arteta. Uh, sorry, not Arteta, with Emery. This squad mm. right now might unfortunately be the best one we're able to have for quite some time. I think you're right, but I think it's on a knife edge, isn't it? I think it could go either way. It's like you know, Aubameyang stays for whatever reason. I think you know, I think that gives us a huge boost. I think even if he goes, I think if you know you could see Martinelli being used pretty regularly and you could see Pepper. I don't know. I, I still feel, I feel that he, he could still pull through. And as you say, with a preseason, with him really ramming home his ideas into this lot. And we've got the young defender coming in, haven't we? That, that we, that, that we brought in advance. Um, yeah, yeah. Saliba. But when so, has anybody ever, but here's the thing, here's my worry about the Obama Yang thing, right? Cause I, 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 I you're an optimist boy though. And that's why yes. I love you. And I am too a little bit, but I look at it and I go, We've been here before. We've been here before. How many conversations have we had? I think Sesk's going to stay. I think Thierry might do another year. I think Nasri isn't going to go anywhere. I feel, every time I feel like we have these conversations about our big players, Sanchez, you know, every time we say they might sign a new deal, they might sign a new deal. When has a player, apart from Ozil, signed a new deal and stayed when there's been a will he won't he stay or go i feel like we've consistently mm. locked that stay or go debate and so therefore i just have quite little faith that obama yang is going to be the one that stays i'd love it if he was i'd love the loyalty if he did but i uh, i just feel like maybe it's just to protect my own heart i'm already going well we've been here before and whenever it's a will he won't he it's usually a will he, he will um go and so yeah you're you know, right I'm, yeah. I'm you're right, of course. I just think, I, I think for almost non-footballing reasons, that would be the main reasons why he might stay, you know, just because, you know, of his friendship with Lacazette and of his, you know, just, of, I think he's he, he likes where he's living and I think he's, I just, you know, I just have that vibe about it more. Whereas I think most of those players you just mentioned who all did leave, I felt it was fairly obvious most of the time that they were angling to go and there was like a club they desperately wanted to go to and they, you know, I, I don't know, and they just didn't, you know, they I didn't feel know. happy in themselves. I know, I'm, I haven't been completely, <laughs> completely blindly optimistic, of yeah. course. Look, I'd love it if he did. He's been such a... I mean, he's so important. And my, my, the issue is I just don't know how you find another Obama Yang. I feel no. like no. that's the concern. Um, you know, I just don't, I don't know if he's replaceable really because it's taken us so long to find that striker since van persie yeah. left 
you know, we had so many years of looking for who could be the replacement to, you know, you went Ian Wright, Nick Anelka, Thierry Henry, Robin Van Persie. And then, you know, players came and went and they tried their best, but they were never the level. And Aubameyang was the first one that really um, gave us somebody to, you know, to sort of play towards up there. And, uh, and yeah, it's going to be a really dark day for this football club. If he does go, I think that is the single biggest bit of business that will affect where we are as a club for the next couple of years, if I'm honest, because it took so long to find him. Um, I worry. I completely agree. I I, I just, I, I, yeah, I just pray and hope that for some weird reason he stays. Yeah. I want to ask you, we, 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 well, we're not running out of time. We've we've taken up, you know, no one's got anywhere to be, boy, though. (laughs) I know. We've got till August. (laughs) (laughs) If you could just talk me through every single meeting you've had in the build up to getting the friends special done, that'd be great. We can talk about that for the next few hours. Yeah. Great. But but, uh, go on, Josh. Um, Well, well, Ben had this lunch with Arsene Wenger. Yes, um, I was going to ask about I wanted that, yeah. to hear about it. Were you going to ask about Because, Ben, yes. I, I know you were... I don't know if there's been a bigger defender or biggest advocate over the years of, of Arsene. And then, I mean, we heard about it a little bit from Dermot, but, but that must have been an amazing experience. Yeah, it really was. Um, we, we won it in an auction, um, uh, and... Uh, it was a magnificent lunch. Um, I've look. I, I've I've made no. Uh, I've never hidden from the fact that I am an Arsen lover. I feel like uh, I always said to everybody, "Be careful what you wish for when Arsen goes." And I feel like, to a certain extent, I was proven right. Uh, but many other people would still blame him for uh, their cup of tea being cold. Uh, who knows? Anyway, <laughs> um, so. Yeah, we, we, we went and, and he sat with us. It was a private room in a restaurant um, and uh, he arrived and I could see he was a little bit nervous because he was sort of thinking, I don't know who these guys are who I'm sitting with. And it was Dermot, myself and a friend of mine, uh, Joff, Jonathan Field. And um, and we sat there and we, the first thing we did was we went around the table and I started and I said, look, obviously this is about, you know, us asking you questions, but I think it would be a really lovely idea if so that you know who we are. We went through... Uh, one by one and explained um, who we are and 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 we did that and Dermot spoke very beautifully about becoming an Arsenal fan and the Irish connection and watching Liam Brady as a child and uh, jo- Joff spoke about going to games with his late grandfather and his late father and how Arsenal had always been in his family and it was the thing that you know connected him to uh, his ancestors and the people who had lost. Um, and I spoke about going since 1987, I think was when we started going, uh, when I was like six and, and, and I t- spoke about how Arsene affected me in, and, and how he changed the perception of Arsenal and therefore he changed our life. Um, and how he made us fall in love with football and the way it could be played and also the way he held himself. Um, and, and, and the way he sort of epitomized so much about what was important in football and life. And, and I could see that as we were talking to him, he was sort of lightening up and he was thinking, Oh, these guys are all right. They're not sort of, you know, boozy city boys or or, or people who are just going to tell me what I did was wrong all those years. Uh, And he really opened up. We had a, you know, it was supposed to be an hour and a half. He ended up staying, I think three and a half, four hours. Um, And it went from sort of like 1230. And I think we left at like four o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon. And he went through everything really. Um, We talked about so much. I think I made notes when I left because my head was 
had exploded so much. I wanted to remember so much about it. But he came across ultimately as a man who just cared so deeply about the football club um, and cared so deeply about um, about us, really, in a way. Um, he felt like he dedicated so much of his life to Arsenal. Uh, I could see he was really proud of everything he had achieved and proud of the memories he had given us. Um, and it was clearly tainted with sadness that so many people had um, uh, gone away from him or didn't back him near the end. And there was clearly sadness in that. Uh, there was emittance of a few errors he felt like he may have made, but he felt like he did his best for the football club over many, many years. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, there was just a real passion there for football. And, and it was one of the most amazing afternoons I've ever had in my life. Um, I don't know if I'd go into details about stuff he said or gossip or stories oh, or no. No. because he did, you know, he was very, very frank and very, very honest. But, but part of the reason he was so frank and so honest was because he, um, he knew it was off the record. So, so out of respect to that, I wouldn't necessarily repeat anything that was specifically said, but, but I think that his love for Arsenal and his love for football and how he had dedicated his life much at the, um, detriment to his family and his friends. That was very clear. It was very clear that he had chosen Arsenal over anything else in his life um, in a really compelling way, in a way that I don't think I would ever have chosen my career or profession over my wife or my family or my children. It was a very interesting um, three hours in, into his mind. Um, and we asked him anything. And, you know, he was brutally honest about his opinions of everything from Pochettino to Jose to Mourinho to, to the players that he'd bought to, you know, who could be a manager and who couldn't to the future of the football club. It was in a really engaging three hours. And, and truthfully, he was everything that you wanted him to be. You know, they say never meet your heroes. Well, they never met Arsene Wenger because he was uh, a, a phenomenal. And um, yeah, my, I've always been full of love for him. I understand why it was the time for him to go. I don't dispute that, but um but it was a really, uh, but but it made me feel very grateful for everything he'd given us over the years. Mm. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm, he's one of the greatest people ever to be involved in football, isn't he? Let alone Arsenal. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't argue with that at all. I've been trying to eat from Derma like we, every every time I've seen him, and you know, when we go to Arsenal since any tiny little bit of gossip from that event, because he also thinks it's one of the greatest days of his life as well. And he's, you know, he's a few little details have emerged, but yeah, it sounds like an incredible, one incredible thing to 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 be able to do. Yeah, it really, was. I am I am very jealous of that. It that really, is, really was. He ordered a very uh, bizarre wine. <laughs> That was what Did I did. That I can say. He said he, the, the wine waiter came and he said, um, "Could we have a red wine from Champagne?" And I was like, Sh "What?" And so I'd never heard of red wine champagne. <laughs> wow! You know, there was a red wine that they found for him. It was a very, very specific request. And uh, yeah, that was. Um, if I ever get to see him again, I'm going to make sure I track down a bottle of that red wine champagne that I can uh, give him and uh, as a gift. Um, but yes, he was. He was. He was remarkable and passionate, and uh, yeah, it was it was everything I wanted it to be. That lunch, fantastic. Yeah, Josh, if is, is there anyone who would you most like to have a similar lunch with? Who who would, you, who would be you know Arsenal related? Who in the, a manager or player? Who would you like to have that experience with? 
Um, I guess it would be one of your, your, you know, your childhood heroes, and I think that brings me on to, to another question for Ben. I get my ultimate, you know, childhood hero. I guess was, you know, like so many, the guy that scored all the goals when you when you started going. And for me, that was Ian Wright. And and what I found peculiar, Boyd, and we mentioned this on on WhatsApp to each other earlier, was Ben um, put up a uh, a photo of watching the Queen with a with a wonderful bespoke piece of art that was very identifiable. And then earlier today, Ian Wright put up a post on his social media um and it looked like it, it was from ben's front room but i don't know if ben can confirm or deny whether it was that. i ben i texted before you answer this question i texted josh to say when being right put his picture up of that same watching the queen with that same picture i texted him saying is ben winston currently living with ian Wright?" that was my question um so look at you two, Hawkeyes, you're with your Instagram research. Oh, yes, yeah. I did post a picture yesterday of, I've got a portrait of the Queen blowing bubblegum. You can see it on my Instagram, Mr. Ben Winston. Uh, and I posted it yesterday, and then Righty this morning did post a picture of him sitting under the same painting. Um, so, uh, yes, it is in my house. Righty wasn't in my house yesterday, uh, that is for sure. I did. I got a text this morning, though, from Righty saying, hey, do you have a picture of me sitting underneath your painting? Because I want to post it too. And I was like, sure. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, I, uh, I've known Tony Adams for a long time. We've become, we became friends many years ago. Uh, he's an amazing, remarkable man. And, um, and uh, about three years ago, uh, he texted me randomly and he said, oh, I've got... Um, I've got a mate of mine is in LA and he doesn't know anybody. Uh, do you fancy um, looking after him, you know, taking him out? He's got to work out in LA for a few weeks. Um, and I was like, sure. And he was like, it's Ian Wright. Here's his number. And I was like, oh my God. Um, and so Wright, he was just in LA. He was working for uh, Fox Sports. He was doing some commentary. And yeah. so um, I sort of reached out to him and said, hey, I hear you're on your own in, in, in LA. Fancy dinner, which was so bold of me to like go for it. But I was like, why not? I also think when you live abroad, and I feel this a lot, when you live abroad and people come to see you, or not to come see you, so I don't mean that. When other people are abroad, it's like, you know, you know when you're on holiday in, let's say yeah. you go to Spain and there's somebody who lives near you or a friend of yours from school who also happens to be in Spain, you'd meet up with them because you yeah, think, totally, yeah. Whereas actually you live in the same town as them for 20 years. You've never seen them. <laughs> You're both in Spain. You think we should meet up. It's yeah. the same thing when people come to Los Angeles, they like reach out and they go, Hey, I'm in LA. We should meet up. And, and it's lovely. Cause you know, so I reached out to my text to him. I said, Hey, uh, we don't know each other. Tony gave me your number. Um, he said, we should meet up. He immediately said, yeah, let's do it. We went out for dinner. We had an amazing dinner. Uh, his wife was there too. We had a double date. It was phenomenal. The guy is everything you want him to be. He was amazing guy and i said to him hey listen i was gonna have a barbecue tomorrow night at mine if you want to join and he was like sure i'd love to um and then uh and then the next day he called me and i remember mary was meredith my wife was laughing at me because i was so excited that ian wright was coming around for a barbecue and um she he called me that morning and as the phone rang i was like ah oh, my heart sunk i was like here he is pulling out because of course you know on the night you've had a few to drink you you know you go oh yeah you know blah 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 i'll come i'll come and then actually it comes to the day and and he pulls out and then my phone rang and it was ian right and i was like my heart sunk i was like hey right and he was like hey man listen about this barbecue tonight and i was like yeah man no worries if you can't make it he was like oh no i've just i've double booked myself because I was supposed to have dinner with a mate tonight. And I was like, oh, well, don't worry about it, man. We can do it another time. You know, devastated, trying to hide 
the tears in my eyes. <laughs> yeah. like, well, no, I was actually wondering, would you mind if I brought my friend to yours uh, rather than go out for dinner with him? I was like, sure. I was like, of course. He's like, okay, it's Lee Dixon. I was like, oh, God, <laughs> on, come on over. <laughs> so, um, so I had a barbecue that day at my house with Lee Dixon and Ian Wright, and it was pinch yourself stuff. It was like, and, you know, that was a couple of years ago. They've both become friends since, and, and they are as lovely as you'd, you know, you could imagine. And, uh, yes, so anyway. Yeah, the both story comes together. That that is a brilliant story. Yeah, both... and we had a lovely barbecue, and and uh, and, and we're in touch, and, and we speak from time to time, and and uh, they're proper Arsenal. They love the football club. They worry about the football club, um, and I think Wrighty and Dicker, they all are just you know, they're just brilliant people, and I'm, I feel very lucky yeah. and spoiled that I'm able to call them mates. It's a it sounds like a very name droppy story, so I apologize for that. But you no. did ask me about it. I didn't offer it up there. You did ask me. Um, well my, my response to that is, uh, is that I was you know when in, in, in this time of um self isolation or wherever it is and uh i've been clearing out my flat i've been trying to get rid of all because i'm a hoarder and i've been i've been I, i've got like thousands of magazines and you know every issue of every magazine i ever worked on and books and i've been you know every every weekend i clear i try and clear out and the one thing I've, i lost this at years in my first year at heat magazine which is 21 years ago um i interviewed ian wright do you remember in his he he became this kind of and he he, he talks about it now how much he regrets that he did these itv you know guinness world of record shows he became a tv presenter yeah basically. for sure um as opposed to the pundit he is now and i think he's a brilliant pundit now and i think he's doing exactly what he wants to do but back then he felt you know he, he wanted he, he went a bit showbiz you know literally he was like doing tv stuff like that and i so i got to interview him for he and obviously he was already my hero absolute 100 percent hero and a god to me and he was the most it was the most exciting thing i'd only been at heat for like six months and i interviewed him and it was he was brilliant and i sat in the back of his car and we chatted for about a couple of hours and he was incredible he was on brilliant form he was you know absolutely astonishing and we went in the magazine and i got it framed i got the opening spread of it framed because i was you know it was so it's such a thing for me and i've lost it for years honestly about 15 years i've been trying to find this framed picture of my interview with ian wright and i found it yesterday when i was clearing out all my stuff and it was like it was at the bottom of a box with lots of various other bits and pieces of us so i was so happy now i've got literally looking at it now and the headline, by the way, because obviously when we do heat interviews, back then we were slightly more newsy than we are now. The headline is, every opportunity Michael Parkinson gets, he has a go at me. I'm treating it with the contempt it deserves. How weird. <laughs> <laughs> he slagged off Michael Parkinson in this interview. I was like, fucking hell. That was just weird. But, yeah, what a brilliant guy he is. He, he really is. He's, um, and, he's, and you know what the funny thing is about these players? And what I find remarkable about these players is – they're proper Arsenal. Like, yeah. it's really interesting because I wonder if the current batch of players, or even five years ago or ten years ago's players, are going to be... Like, you speak to Lee Dixon about Arsenal, and granted, you know, people criticise them sometimes because they have to be pundits and they have to criticise the club. But you speak to Tony or Wrighty or, or, or Dixon or any of these players, and, and obviously, Josh, you work with a lot of these ex-pros in the job that you do, and it's amazing how much they love the club because ultimately yeah. like right he played for palace um dixon was a man city fan growing up you know but yet arsenal is their team and it's and, and they are as devastated when it's going wrong as we are and they're as excitable as we are when when, when we're winning and so it's been really great in a way to 
like share that passion with them and it's everything that you'd hope they'd be in their love for the club and i think that's really interesting and i think it's actually the same for those french boys i think that era of like I think if you spoke to Petit or Vieira or Thierry Henry, I think they're the same. They have a real affiliation with the football club in a really beautiful way. Um, from you yeah. know, I heard rumours from sources that Patrick Vieira was devastated not to be considered for the job instead of Arteta. I think he felt oh, like really? he had a really good job in New York. He's Arsenal mm. through and through, and I think he was like he he wanted to be the manager of Arsenal Football Club more than anything else. And I think that's a really um, lovely thing that people feel this affiliation and i hope the current batch of footballers will feel that same affiliation i guess it's harder because a lot of them aren't from the uk or europe even and obviously i know i've mentioned french players who aren't either but i i wonder and also you know players don't stay for 10 years at a football club like these boys did um mm. but it's uh, it's really interesting how much of an affiliation they have with teams so actually you end up sitting at dinner with ian wright thinking you're, you know, you're just going to talk to him about, you know, scoring against Leeds or whatever. And actually, all he wants to talk about is Lacazette and Aubameyang has got to stay. And and their passion for the club is is infectious and beautiful and everything you'd want it to be. Yeah, I love that. That is that, that, absolutely the case. Well, I think that's a nice place to end because we've been talking for nearly, we're talking for, nearly, well, an hour and a quarter now. And Paul Leon, our engineer slash guru, has to go to bed at some point and you know he's got to edit this thing so i don't want to i don't want to drag on too long but it's been brilliant having you back ben um after all this time you sound brilliant you've, you've been uh, fascinating as ever and yeah it's been it's been wonderful haven't you well i'm very grateful i uh that i got asked back after all of these years in the wilderness um <laughs> but know that like yeah there's uh yeah it's it's difficult it's you know it's like i feel there's two th- Los Angeles has been an amazing time for me and my family. We've had two kids since we've been here and life is really great and professionally things have gone okay. But like there's two things I really miss and that is my family, uh, you know, my mum and dad and brother and sister, mm. you know, the extended family. I really miss them and being away from them has been hard. But the real thing on top of that genuinely is going to games because, of course, there isn't a game that isn't on TV here. They're always on TV. And, yeah. uh, you know, even if it's getting up at four in the morning, my alarm is set for 3.45. So I'm fully awake for 4 a.m. if it's a 12.30, you know, 12 o'clock kickoff. But um, there's nothing like going to football. And, you know, and, uh, and, and, and I've flown in for the odd game. I flew in for the Azerbaijan game. I've flown in for a few key league games. But it's hard to, you know, and, and so... Uh, that is the one thing I've missed. So I listen to you guys a lot because that makes me feel like I'm closer to home and I'm closer to the Arsenal. And um, yeah, and 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 it doesn't matter where you live in the world, the passion for the Arsenal doesn't change. And uh, it's lovely to yeah. be back here talking about it again. Brilliant. And you do give us the benefit of your full opinions on on on, on WhatsApp. So yeah, we do. Yeah, whatever we I hear, I don't like. You, you definitely, you definitely hear. <laughs> yeah, we know. We, we, we know about, about you too. Yeah. Cheers, mate. That's been brilliant. Right. Josh, uh, it's been no, wonderful. Just, uh, it's, been, it's been fantastic. We just need Ben to promise, because I, I technically have Ben season tickets while while he's been in LA. They're both in his name, but we just need to get a guarantee from him now that he's not going to demand they're both back with him when he's back. He can have one back with pleasure, but I think I've done six years now of looking after them. I'm, I'm keeping at least one. Yeah, there's no, unfortunately, when it comes to season tickets, there is no squatter's rights. So they will be mine. Uh, they will stay in my name. You are loan them. That is it. But I, what I would say is that my plus one is always going to you. So how about that? 
Yeah, that sounds oh. fair. I, to be honest, it, it's. Um, I mean, you might you might fancy joining the likes of Boyd in club level. I don't no, know. Never, I, I imagine never. if you want to stay at the never. back row, never. Well, keeping it real. Never. I will never be a club level guy. I will oh. always be on the back row of by the corner flag, sitting next to the partially impaired man who we always sit next to. We keep it real in club level. Me and Derma and usually Don Baldwin. We keep it real. It's fine. There's nothing about there is nothing. The words club level and keeping it real cannot be in the same sentence. Boy, it's true. It's true. It's full of normal people. It's full of normal people who spend their entire life savings on getting the fucking ticket. That's what it is. It's just normal it's fine. People, it depends what your normal is, Boydo. If your normal is media lovies from Islington who live in public, <laughs> then sure, it's full of normal. No, that's us, but we're surrounded by normal people as well, honestly. It's fine. Oh, my God, Boydo's um, lost it. I've been in L.A. and Boydo's the one that's gone Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and I am coming over when that fucking friend special happens. Whenever it happens, I'm coming over to see that. Honestly, it's going to be the greatest day of my life. Right, um, you're always welcome. <laughs> thank you. Cheers, Ben. It's been wonderful. And Love thank you, all. Josh. And we'll be back next week with hopefully another fantastic special guest. And hopefully, we're all still going and everything will be fine. Be fine. Keep safe and uh, see you next week. Cheers. Bye, everybody. Bye. This is a playback media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit playbackmedia.co.uk. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.